Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. Challenging the dominance of Cat A Fit Out, brought to you in association with Hollis. Well, well thank right, you everyone we'll for coming along to our morning. presentation today. So I'm Cole Stansby. I'm a director of project management at Hollis and I work predominantly in the office and industrial sectors. And I'll be chairing this session today, which is titled Challenging the Dominance of the Cat A Fit Out. So we've got a great panel from across the design, build and deconstruction phases of the office development schemes, who I'll introduce in no particular order. We've got Melanie Martin, who's an associate director at Orms Architects. Anna Foden, who's the head of sustainability at ISG. Lucy Bagshaw, who's an associate director at TP Bennett. And last but not least, Lindsay West, who's director of operations at KPH Deconstruction Services. So we've gone a bit rogue and not done a presentation, so we're just more just going to have a chat around the subject area. Um, it went quite well in our first rehearsal, so hopefully we have the same results this time round. I'm just going to give you a little intro now and just set the scene slightly on the agenda. So the goal of the session is to get the panel's thoughts on the dominance of the Cat A office market, given that it's been estimated that fit-outs are responsible for anywhere between 20 and 50% of the whole life carbon associated with office development schemes. As you've probably seen from this week, architects, structural engineers are doing a lot of great work in reducing embodied carbon on building structures and larger building components. But if as a sector we're going to get anywhere close to hitting the World Green Building Council's commitment to reduce overall embodied carbon by 40% by 2030, the building's fit out is going to need a lot more focus. The estimates at the lower end of this are based on lots of shell and floor or shell and core developments, and those at the higher end are based on landlords' cat A fit-outs. And quite a few people are arguing that the, these estimates aren't actually going far enough when you take into the account the bespoke nature of a tenant's cat B fit-out and the fact that these fit-outs are typically refitted every eight years over the average span of an office, office's life. And this eight-year period is also reducing as lease lengths are getting shorter, so it's typically kind of five or six years at the moment. So anyone that knows the office sector well will know that most buildings are traditionally let, on a, or, let or developed on a cat A configuration, which is floors, ceilings, open plan M&E, open plan lighting. And once the building is let, the tenant spends a lot of time, a lot of money and a lot of carbon fitting out the cat A space to make it bespoke to their operations. And when their lease ends after three, five, ten years, whatever, whatever the length is, uh, it's basically all stripped out and a new landlord's cat A is put in place and then this whole process starts over and again. The BCO are aware that this is quite a wasteful practice and things need to be addressed. So they've sent quite a few guidance notes around over the last couple of years, uh, basically advising the sector how we need to make changes. So this morning we're going to explore the issues associated with the cat A process what improvements the client design and construction teams can make to reduce embodied carbon, and finally, if technology can help us utilize, uh, can help us utilize this and make this reduction. We're gonna reserve five or 10 minutes at the end for some questions from the audience, which you can ask on the Slido Footprint Plus app. I think the stage number app is just in front of me here, FP23, and there'll also be a mic going around as well to grab some questions there. I was gonna put a poll on Slido, but that hasn't quite worked so before we start I was just going to get a bit of audience participation and just put a kind of initial show of hands on 
if you personally think Cate Fit Out should be consigned to history or it's something we should kind of continue with doing. So consigned to history, if you could raise a hand. A reasonably low percentage uh, or yeah, we should continue doing them. Similar, okay. Interesting to see, I might ask the same poll at the end and see what the results are. <laughs> uh, so to kick things off and to set the agenda, I'd like to know from each of the panel today, uh, what's the first thing that comes to mind when a client asks you to either design, build, or deconstruct a Cate office? And yeah, Anna, I'll start with you and I'll quickly grab a seat. Um, yeah, I think my first thought is, well, um, ISG fit out team is just gonna come and strip this out next year. Okay. Excellent. Melanie? Uh, first thing we always advocate for is understanding what you have. You know, our assets are a material bank. So that's a resource to be used. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Lucy? Don't do it. <laughs> Simply, it's, uh, it's creating waste. It's prolonging program. Um, it's adding cost. It, I think we can find other ways. Okay, perfect. And finally, Lindsay? Yeah, it feels, it feels quite criminal, to be fair, um, especially when you walk in and these things are, uh, you know, as you said, uh, could be a few years old and um, have such use and um, it, does, it just feels very much like um, it's, not, it's not needed, it's not, it's not the way forward. Okay, well, that, that certainly sets the scene to get things kicked off then. So, yeah, just to start with a few round of questions. So, Cate, off, Cate offices have obviously dominated the sector for decades. We've all been doing them for probably as long as we've all been in the industry. Have you noticed this trend start to change over recent years? And if so, what's replacing it? Um, I, th I think the reality is people still need a vision. When, when looking for space, you're, you're selling a dream, as cheesy as that sounds. And I think we still need the ability to demonstrate that possibility and flexibility of space. But I think how we deliver it has to change. And the idea that we could be putting in much less as show suites, visualization, CGIs to enable that visualization of what's possible and really minimizing um, that initial um, spend, if you like, in carbon. And that early engagement piece with tenants, with agents is really important to be able to understand what their needs are and only put in the bare minimum at the start to avoid waste. And are you, are you seeing kind of, yeah, shell and floor is something that I'm certainly seeing from a project management perspective on a lot of projects at the moment. Is that something that you're seeing more of in the industry or? Yeah, we're, we're seeing more shell and floor um, still, well, with the recent trend in the design world for exposed services, we're seeing them going in a lot still fewer um, ceilings um, in the buildings that we're now starting to design the interiors of. Um, there's still some element of Cate going in, but yeah, I think race access floors are still there. Yeah. They seem there to stay, to be honest. Um, but ceilings, maybe not so much. Okay, and yeah, Lindsay, Anna, I don't know whether you're from a kind of contractor strip outside, whether yeah. you're noticing any trends. Uh, we, we very much are still stripping out Cate pretty, quite regularly. Um, I think we're seeing a bit of a trend towards attempting to keep as much as possible, but a lot of the times that's noted on drawings just saying, keep as much of this as possible yeah. with no thought out plan on where it's going to go, no engagement with the manufacturer of those materials. It's, it's just a, talk, you know, throw the hot potato down the path to the contractor. Keep it, keep it if you can. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah I would advocate that very much so. It is very much, you know, when we're, when we're given strip-out drawings now, it is very much, um, okay, we're going to look to retain this, we're going to look to retain that, and often we do. Yeah. And then we find at the end of the project, and it's probably very similar for yourself, actually, there is no use for that, and it ends up, it ends up going where, it, where it's going to inevitably go, which is, you know, in, into a waste skip. So it's just, um, there needs to be a lot more thought around um, if we are retaining this, um, you know, is that is that need? What's that need, and how are we going to store it? What's the logistics? How does that look? So it just sometimes feels like it's on the strip out plans, but there isn't that that afterthought, and there hasn't been the same level of consideration about actually can we retain this, and what are we actually going to get at the end of it? What's that going to look like? Is that usable? Um, does that is that actually going to work? You know, I think. Sorry, Sorry. Uh, what, what we found through a lot of trial and error is just that allowance to collaborate, mm. um, to, to get people like yourself involved early days to understand realistically what can be demounted. Is that going to come apart well? How do we store it? So we have tried that um, with ceiling tiles. Um, lots of lesson learned, but first of all, you know, the teams on site aren't necessarily trained to take stuff down carefully. And if you're taking it down with a vision for a reuse, there is a lot of learning that we need to do together as an industry to make that possible. But in terms of the reuse and understanding, actually, is it going to work? What we found really useful is building into our specifications opportunities to trial. Now, as architects, it means we're actually writing four specifications <laughs> instead of one, because we're saying, OK, actually, maybe a deep clean of ceiling tiles is possible, depending on the condition. Maybe an on-site spray is possible. Do we need to take it away, repowder coat it, and, and come back? And, and through that process, I think we're taking the teams, the client agents on a journey to really test what's feasible. And so on a recent scheme, 25,000 square feet, we've actually put back um, the, the metal tiles in a deep clean yeah. at, at a sort of grade A spec. So I think the thing with it as well is trying to understand how, how are we going to reuse but at top quality. And in examples such as that with ceiling tiles is one that I'm sure we're all used to kind yeah. of, yeah, whether the debate around trying to retain it, respray it, whether you put a brand new one or even one at all in there nowadays. How has that gone from kind of leasing agent's perspective when potential occupiers are looking at it? Is it something that, I don't like this ceiling, it's, it's not brand new? It's a conversation, and I think that the fact we've just delivered it, I think, is, is a massive win. I think it, it goes without saying there was a lot of hesitation at first, but we were very fortunate to be working with a client who believed in it and sort of was adamant, you know, if we don't do this, who else is going to do it? So, so there has to be willing amongst the team. And I think that mock-up process allows the opportunity for people to engage, critique what's there, and really understand what's possible before you go for it. And I think, sorry, oh, go, go on, sorry. It is very much that collaboration um, at, all, at all stages with all contractors, because even if we're coming in and taking these things apart, we need to ensure that, you know, you know, Anna's team is happy to receive them in the condition that they're going to receive them in. So it is having that early collaboration, exactly that benchmarking, um, trials, um, delivering that expected level of finish and what that looks like um, to ensure that we're not having, you know, we're not doing things unnecessarily. And I, I think it needs a degree of flexibility in terms of expectations and specifications. There's a tolerance there that it, it isn't going to necessarily be 100% shiny, 
but I think there's a story there that tenants are buying into and the reality of whether it's raised floors or ceiling tiles, massive carbon in those two elements alone in terms of a cat A offer. Ideally, we don't put them in at all. Yeah. <laughs> but if, if we are going to do it, can we do it in a more sustainable way? I'm sure we all work over kind of a range of size of office developments, whether it be kind of, yeah, your smaller single floor plates or bigger office buildings. Are you noticing kind of more fully fitted offices kind of moving away from the trends of just pure cat A or is that something you're, you're seeing bits of but not a huge amount of? We're doing a range, um, but Cate Fitout is still really dominant uh, for our architecture team. Um, but what we are seeing is more clients that are um, welcoming the idea of not going for a full Cate Fitout, so not including those ceilings, for example. Um, a project that we recently completed in Leeds, um, uh, we put in the services, but we didn't put in the ceilings. It was the fastest that the developer had ever let out a site. So it shows that, and, and that was actually notably a large amount of that was to a bank who, in our experience, are sometimes one of the slower ones to kind of be able to visualize a space. Um, it, it just shows that it can sell without having to go that full extent of, of, of fully fitted cate. Yeah, I, would, I wanted to come back uh, two things, I guess. The first is, if the cat A wasn't there to begin with, we wouldn't have to come up with solutions to rehome it. So problem solved there. But you know, when it when it does exist, um, we've all touched on the, the the topic of collaborating, and a lot of the times it's the contractor. We're just not brought in early enough to help with that collaboration. We'll come in at the tail end of Reba stage four, and all these amazing design opportunities and rehoming opportunities just aren't there because the budget has been set, the program has been set, and you. We all work in fit out, it flies by, you know, you need to give us the time and the space and the logistical opportunity to be able to, to take advantage of some of these, these opportunities. So more often than not, we're not given that chance and sadly we do have to do a lot of strip out, but when we have had these pockets of excellence, um, it, we've had the time. We've had the time and we've had the money to do it. And is that typically bringing earlier in a project kind of more D&B basis probably as opposed to going down a more traditional route? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think D&B might be controversial for some, but it does allow us and afford us the time and opportunity or, or a nice pre-construction period yeah. um, to be able to, to find these opportunities when we are put in the position of having to strip out. But yeah. again, it could all be avoided if we didn't have the cafe. <laughs> Uh, um, so increasingly something that I'm definitely seeing on a lot of my schemes is more embodied carbon assessments being completed on fit-out schemes. I wonder if that, yeah, if, is that something you're seeing and kind of how it's impacting, particularly from a design perspective, how it's influencing the decisions you're making? We're doing more of them, more and more of them. But again, as Anna was saying, it's when the um, programme can afford it and, and quite often it can't. Um, and quite often the client doesn't see the value no matter how hard we push them to do it. What we are finding, though, is um, particularly with Cat A fit-outs, is doing kind of one-off calculations to show them the impact of a certain decision um, that they might be making. So do they put ceilings in or do they not? By doing a simple calculation, you know, 24 kilograms of upfront carbon for a ceiling tile, a meter squared of ceiling tile, times 13,000 square foot, for example, is th over 300 tonnes of carbon. So you can put, put a really simple calculation that's really quick to do in front of them and say, you know, as well as the cost saving, 
that you'd be doing, the program saving, you could also save this amount of carbon. What a great story for, for you, for your clients, for your end tenants, you know, and, and, and we found that's been really well responded to. Okay, we, yeah, yeah it's, it's, say, oh, it's a really useful tool, I think, to demonstrate the metrics. But it, it, at the end of the day, it still needs a strategy and a drive and actually, you know, direct engagement with the supply chain to make things happen and change how pieces are being used and um, disseminated. And I think that engagement with the supply chain is really important so that you know, collectively, we're understanding the impact of products and, and can repurpose in, in different ways. Yeah, okay, and Lindsay, I know you had... Um, yeah, I think from my perspective, obviously, I'm looking at it purely from a deconstruction, strip-out point of view, but what we're seeing more of um, is... We are seeing more of this, which I advocate. Um, the in terms of pre-refurbishment audits, we're seeing them being done a lot earlier in the process. It was very much a very tick box exercise where, um, oh, we need a pre-refurbishment audit, that's going to give us a tick with Briam. And it was kind of done maybe a week before we're about to start the strip out. It has absolutely no benefit whatsoever. So we're now doing a lot more of those standalone, a lot earlier in the process, so that we can come on board and identify actually what you know, what could be reused? What's, what's the barriers to the reuse? And then obviously give that information to the design team and, and then they can look at how could that be incorporated? Or does he even want to, do you even want to incorporate it? But doing that early in the process and then managing that client's expectation around what actually can be achieved. Because often what we find is that what can actually be achieved on site in versus what the aspirations are very are two very different things. Logistics are a you've already alluded to it. They're a huge part of um, allowing us to take apart buildings and, and reuse items, whether it's within the scheme or whether it's um, elsewhere. So having those pre-refurbishment audits done early and pretty much standalone, um, I think really helps helps the, the whole process to be more successful. And yeah, yeah, Melanie, are you finding examples where that, that is indeed happening in reality, that you're kind of, there's, it is engaged early on in the process, strip out people are brought on and board, so you can kind of use that in your designs, or is it something that just... We have, and it's, um, what's happening is, is anything from us being able to repurpose on our design, or, you know, we're fortunate enough to be working with some of the larger estates, and actually... If we can't use it, someone else can. So a recent, you know, 50,000 square foot refurbishment had a lot of cat, cat B left in it. Through direct engagement with some of the glazed partition suppliers, they came in. There's conversation about actually, you know, this is supposed to be a demountable system. Can you demount it and can we use it again? Now, we didn't end up using it, but they ended up taking it away, testing it, and it's now being sold on to another site um, in, in Birmingham for reuse. So there's conversations that are starting to happen between the industry, whether it's um, suppliers or even, you know, we've got a retail project on site in Oxford Street with beautiful, you know, five meter high sash windows. We've put it out there to, to our network, and there's another architecture practice who are coming to collect them to use them on one of their projects. And I think, you know, we have a dream that one day we can specify used material as easily as we can do new material. It's not happened yet, but in the meantime, I think if we keep speaking and reaching out and just really trying to facilitate material reuse in a more organic way, I think 
it, yeah. it'll develop. And it, stick, sticking with that, I had a question around kind of upcycling materials and recent projects I've been involved in. Furniture was particularly one where we're trying to ups, keep retain the furniture, upcycle it, but it actually ended up being more cost prohibitive than just buying new stuff and just getting kind of new stuff off the shelf. So I wonder, do we need to be doing more to kind of engage with suppliers and kind of to make sure that upcycling, A, can happen more often in more situations and can be the cheaper option? It's kind of, yeah, yeah it seems perverse that it's actually more expensive to kind of try and retain something. Yeah, I think yes. we can do more, but I think it goes back to Anna's point. It's that it's having that time. Once we're on site, the clock is ticking um, and, it's, and, it, and, and programs are notoriously very tight so having that you know having those conversations early and saying actually we've got an opportunity here because storage is a massive problem for all of us um, you know particularly on site um, there's other elements that come into it whether it's um, fire loading whether it's health and safety issues so it's it's really planning and preparation that's going to be the key to the success of it on site yeah um just kind of touching on the storage issue and, and the availability of, of reused products that are viable to reuse is a huge issue. So something we're doing is we've partnered with a few of our, our, our colleagues, our competitors, if you will. Um, we are all trialing in the next year a combined effort at a reuse scheme um, because we do all have pockets of excellence where this has worked. You know, for example... Um, two years ago, we stripped out six floors of brand new Cat A, full ceilings, brand new lighting. Um, and I challenge that it was, it's more expensive for some things because we were able to rehome all of those LED lights, get them rewarranted by the manufacturer, including the warehouse storage fees, and get them installed in a new project. And it was still cheaper than buying new lights. So there is a case for it. Again, we had a lot of time to do that. So I think marrying up all of our visions with each other is, is crucial. We're not gonna, ISG's not gonna do this in a vacuum. Any other contractor's not gonna do this in a vacuum. We all, we have to make time for it. We have to, you know, plan a bit more into our programs. And I think another, another challenge is convincing clients that reused materials can be just as good as new materials. I think clients for so many years have been sold this shiny vision um, and perhaps we need to draw that back a bit and sell the vision that actually reused is just as sexy as something brand new um, and let us help you do that. It's not as scary as it sounds. Yeah, I quite, I quite like this. I just add that um, if, if we continue to lobby for an embodied carbon tax, it might end up not being more expensive to do yeah. refurbished and, and reused items. So if we keep going down that, then it, then it will end up costing the client more to buy virgin material, which is why that's so important. Sorry, just wanted to add no, that. No, I, would, I would advocate that. We were talking about this earlier. If you think about just from waste and look at waste, and, and people are often quite surprised when I say, you know, from a strip-out project, nothing goes to landfill anymore. And they're like, really? And I'm like, no, it's too expensive. <laughs> the landfill tax is too expensive. So everybody has found a way to ensure that it's, it's being recycled. Obviously, there's different elements of, it, of the way that it's recycled, but it certainly isn't going into a hole in the ground. And, and that, a lot of that is due to the tax that sits on that. Money so, talks, yeah, exactly it? that, yeah. I know, yeah. Lindsay, I know we touched on it earlier on when we were catching up, but Globe, tra Globe Chain, sorry, is quite an interesting scheme that I know yeah, you've been involved Yeah, with. so we, we started working alongside them about three years ago, and it's, it was a frustration of ours, but also of um, a, a client, we do a lot of work with British Land, who um, 
just just wanted to try and find a way that when they were stripping their buildings out that there was these options around uh, reuse and but also tying that in with their social value and their ESG um, aspirations and targets so um, Globechain essentially is a marketplace for strip out companies uh, demolition companies uh, fit out contractors you know the like um, and to put them together with charities social enterprises um, and essentially um, upload what you have to give and they then can bid on bid on those items and, and then come to site to collect them um, I wasn't I must say when we first started the process I did think gosh how are we going to make this work and deliver program and meet all the requirements particularly in live buildings where we have to get most of our waste off of the floors by the end of each working day which is a challenge in itself um, so how are we going to make all this work and make all of this fit um, but actually, it can be done. Um, we had to bring in certain technology within our business to make that work and to streamline that. Um, but we've had some fantastic projects over the last three years um, with Globechain. And, and when I sit back and think, God, you know, five years ago, every, all of that would have just gone into a waste skip. And now we've got charities, social enterprises, um, community centers now benefiting from all of this when it's such a... It's such a difficult time right now for, for, for charities and, and organisations. I just think it's socially the right thing to do. Um, and as long as you can find ways that it is an impacting programme and cost, that's the challenge. Well, that, um, and that, yeah, probably with Anna's, I, I've used it recently on a few schemes where we probably haven't built off in enough time at kind of the front end of the project to really get the benefits from it and kind of... My challenge at the moment, I've got a few short projects where we're literally coming in and we've got a three, four week time on site to strip, I don't know, a, a 1,500 square meters of, 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 um, of a floor footprint. And, and, and we are using globe chain. And so that's, I've got to get that liaison, I've got to get everything uploaded, I've got to get that picked up. So why that will work is because the client's given us a longer lead-in time for me to do that at, at the at front end. And, that, and that, that's, that's how it can be successful. Globe chain sounds amazing, but I also wonder if there's more scope to do things internally within, say, ISG. Um, we, for example, are in the kind of pretty awful situation at the moment where we, um, as the architecture division within our company, um, have put in a cate fit out. And within the interiors division, we are removing that same cate fit out, which is a horrible thing to admit, to be honest. Um, but what we are doing is we're working with um, the contractor um, on the, um, the next project to find a different project that we're working on within TP Bennett to relocate those tiles too. And you know, we work on a number of big projects that are always kind of constantly buying and then others that are selling essentially. So could there be more um, localized um, kind of collaboration with our, within our own teams or within us and the con contractors to try and get that reuse kind of almost more immediately? Um, I think yeah. um, what you, you pick up on a really interesting point, an opportunity there where you know what you're taking out and putting yeah. back. I think one of the challenges we often face when we're inheriting an existing building is not knowing the provenance of materials. And actually, you know, as a practice, we're advocating for material passports and, and that idea of recording what you have, understanding that if you've got tiles, there's a spec that's known, whether it's on a spreadsheet or database, um, 
going forward that all our materials start to note those specifications because if we know what it is, then arguably we can use it. If we don't know the provenance, where it's come from or, or how it's been used, it's a lot more tricky to then repurpose it at you know, scale at a commercial level and be able to say, okay, take a warranty for this. I imagine that's probably happening on a kind of bigger new build developments, but on some of the retrofit schemes, I assume you've got pretty limited information to work on. There's not too many examples of yeah, building passports out there that I know of. We're trying. I've come across. We're trying. Yeah, we're trying with them. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, do, I do want to stress that if the cat A wasn't there in the first place, we wouldn't have to be having this conversation. Like the cat B strip out is a different animal, which, you know, the churn of cat B happens way too quickly. But yeah, if the cat A wasn't there, okay. we wouldn't have to strip it out. And so, yeah, I've heard kind of countless letting agents tell clients that occupiers uh, won't want to view a space until the cat A is complete, just so they can kind of, they can't imagine what it's going to look like and they want to get a better feel for the space. Um, are there any kind of tools, technologies uh, that are available to assist tenants here to kind of maybe envision the space a little bit better? Any tools that you're using kind of from a design perspective? I think diversity of offer is definitely the key, but, you know, a small show suite goes a long way. You can do walkthroughs, fly-throughs alike to complement that, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, you, you don't need 100,000 square feet of the same ceiling tile. You can have a small area fitted out to, to demonstrate that potential, yeah. definitely. I, um, I agree. Give tenants a little bit more credit, maybe, that they might be able to visualize it. And if not, we've got digital tools, we've got, you know, VR, we can do really convincing renderings now. Is it really necessary to see? I mean, I understand that things like ceilings can affect the, the quality of light in a space, and that's where I think, you know, a show floor or a show area is potentially still quite beneficial for some clients to, to sell it. But you don't need the full building to be, to be kitted out, only for it to be ripped out. And I think hopefully we'll see a shift in tenants' uh, opinions in that they actually don't, they will acknowledge that that is something that might end up getting stripped out as well and they won't want it. They'll have that associated carbon with them as well. So. Do you guys have, I've got one on site at the moment actually, where we're, try, we're taking the retrofit approach and really trying to reuse as many materials as possible. And we're really having to explain that story to the agency team and almost give them a script when they're showing tenants around to say the rationale behind some of these decisions that we're making and really get them on board with the process. Have you got good examples where that has worked, hasn't worked or? Um, yeah, we, we, finished, um, we finished a project last year for kind of a big, a big global media company and they were very adamant that the, the space they were moving into, which was fit out to Cat B by a previous client, keep it. We want to come in and see it and keep as much of it as possible. And they did. They stuck to their word um, and they were really on board. So I think, I think you really can flip the script. I think it was like I was saying, you know, the, the dream, the shiny, new and beautiful dream that was sold in the past decade or two. I think the new dream can be re reuse is beautiful, too. And I think I agree. I think we need to give tenants a bit more credit. Um, and, you know, I don't think. Or you'll probably get onto this, but the lease agreements that require tenants to strip back to Cat A, I think, is just a bit ludicrous, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, we can, we can come on to that one now. <laughs> Sorry, so, I jumped no, the gun that's there. That's fine. <laughs> uh, so obviously, yeah, kind of current landlord and tenant relationships and kind of end of lease dilapidation processes are probably at odds with the net zero agenda, I think it's probably fair to say. Do you, yeah, do you think that relationship's got to change? And kind of, yeah, how do you see that kind of moving forward? How do you think it needs to change to make 
kind of net zero be kind of front and centre as opposed to probably cost and money? I mean, I think it's quite interesting, the whole um, site selection process in the first place for the tenants that we're fortunately getting more and more involved in. So a, um, a client that we've, we've just started working with apparently went to go and um, visit 70 different sites um, to make their final selection of building. If we had been part of that, we could have helped narrow down the selection really easily based on their actual requirements from the space. And if we can then extend that to dilapidations then if you can get potential new tenants you know you know that tenants are moving out of the space they've they've said we're not going to extend our lease so you know they're not moving out why not bring in potential tenants that actually might want to take quite a lot of that cat b fit out that cat a fit out at least and actually almost kind of direct reuse for the next tenant why does it always have to be stripped back to nothing and then put it all back in again it's it's where it's completely wasteful when actually a lot of people would benefit from the cost savings, the program savings and the carbon savings. I think there is a degree of flexibility that needs to be added at both ends of the lease. We, we've had conversations recently where you know a, a tenant has taken a space, said with the best intentions they're going to reuse or, or make use of the cat A and then you see their proposals and half of it's gone. And it's like, okay, well, let's, let's take those tiles back because we can use it on another floor. But there isn't the mechanism in the leases yet to be able to have that trade of parts. And I think to be able to build that in front end and at the end, to have that exchange of materials would be so useful to avoid unnecessary wastage. I had one more question before going to a few questions from the audience, probably yeah, more towards you, Anna and Lindsay, just around kind of... Yeah, kind of getting manufacturers on board really with the kind of deconstruct or kind of deconstruction and reuse of products and how much of a challenge that is. I know, yeah, things like carpet tiles are probably reasonably easy nowadays. There's kind of net zero carpet tiles out there, but ceiling tiles, Melanie, I know you mentioned is a huge headache. Partitions is often difficult. Is there more the industry needs to be doing to make that far easier? Yes. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think for, for us, we've tried to focus on the materials that we find um, in a typical strip-out project and look at those that, uh, as part of the recycling process, um, are using the most amount of carbon, if you like. So, for example, carpet tiles, um, they're, they're sent away for uh, waste to energy. So, you know, if you can find a, a home for reuse for those, great. Um, similar with timber, um, we're having some conversations at the moment and actually um, a site visit next week with um, St. Gaban to try and look at how we can deconstruct um, glazed partition um, safely, which is key, um, whilst also not contaminating it in such a way that it can go back into their kind of into a closed loop um, cycle, which is really the ultimate goal when we can't um, reuse items, you know, in their current form, if you like. So having those conversations, I mean, we've seen a bit of, I don't know if it's the same for you, but we find it a lot harder to engage on take-back schemes now, um, especially post-COVID. It's so um, hard. Um, so it's yeah. a lot of, we get asked it a lot, and we kind of very much like, we don't really have that much engagement um, there, hence having to have a look at other avenues um, yeah. for reuse. So that's been quite challenging for us. It's, it's really challenging. There, I'm, you know, there are um, manufacturers out there that do have take-back schemes. I, some of them are incredibly difficult to engage with. They make it very, very difficult. The product has to be in a certain condition in a certain way. And, you know, the 
it has to be a full moon, and then they'll take the product back. So um, if they could, you know, take a bit more responsibility for the life cycle of their products, that might sound a bit controversial, but um, it's the way forward. And there are some, some manufacturers that are engaging with the full life cycle of their product, but there are some that, that aren't. Um, ceiling tiles, SAS actually just came to us. They're trialing um, a life cycle approach, so they've come to us to because we do obviously a load of work with their ceiling tiles if they have a few smaller jobs that they could test out a new life cycle process on. So I think some of the manufacturers are coming around, but um, it's very difficult. And, and it goes all the way back to the way that some of these products are manufactured. Um, you know, adhesive connections versus a mechanical connection. Can something be disassembled? Are they going to give us a, a disassembly set of um, instructions with their, with their piece of kit? Um, all these things that, like I said, we're seeing pockets of excellence of, but I think the, the industry as a whole could really come around on some of the stuff just to make it much easier to engage. I think we've got faith, and there's equally a sort of side industry that's starting to help make this happen. That might not be the core manufacturers, but raised access tiles, for example. There are quite a few companies now that are taking them back testing them, offering them with warranties uh, as you would a new product, which is amazing. You know, completely different world to before. And I just, just need to... I mentioned to Lindsay actually before that raised access floor tiles, you can't get recycled. No, they're get they're impossible anymore. to you get hold of now because that has been such a success. It's, what is yeah. such success? a huge embodied carbon saving. Yeah. Um, you know, that, yeah, they're hard to get hold of. Um, but we're finding more and more that they remain on site anyway and, and looking at cleaning solutions and, and, and the like to obviously keep them retained on site um, that's just more it shows more. it's possible doesn't it's it because a few years yep. ago we'd have been saying they're yep. such an enormous problem and actually now we're saying yep. okay that's you know for now it's and, and, and actually the, the, the amount of uh, program reduction that gives as well from not actually removing raised access floor it's, it's quite surprising um, to be fair yeah and Last question before I jump across to some of the audience questions was just, yeah, I know none of us are necessarily M&E experts, but it's one thing that obviously is all part of the CATE fit out. Lots of time LED light fittings, kind of HVAC systems there. Um, lots of times that kit gets stripped out after kind of five, six, seven years, and it's probably got 15 years worth of life left in it. Lots of times that might be for kind of EPC improvements or what have you, but are you seeing more examples of kind of developers, landlords trying to retain some of that kit, trying to reuse it for longer or are you still seeing it ending up in the in the skip or wherever it ends up after no, I'd of... hand over to Anna, the only thing I will say is there is always a desire so we often start a project with that desire and then we generally get to the end and there'll be an issue with warranty or there'll be an issue with somebody signing that off again, I'm not an expert in that field but it just often can be the case that it starts that way and by the time we get Get, get to the other end of the program, it's actually we can't make this work. So I imagine there's some work to be done. We've done just there. completed um, a scheme which has taken 10, 10 year old kit, refurbished it, and, and let it again for another 10 years. And I think that the important things to note there is very early validations. The, the more you can check, the better to assess actually what's possible. Now, the reality is the validations that were done initially were limited and, you know, there, there ended up being a bit more replacement through, through, um, through the build. 
But what we've had to do is have conversations with uh, the, the clients about the leasing arrangements and how that's framed for the next 10 years. And there has to be a degree of flexibility where you know, okay, at the end of that 10 years, it's going to be coming to, to the uh, end, end of its life. So to, to take on a degree of that responsibility by the landlord is part of that conversation to make it, it possible. But Okay, it, conscious of time, so I'm just going to quickly add a few audience questions. So lots of them actually around kind of agency and client-type questions. Um, so one from Anonymous. On every project I've worked on, We've been pushed to we, we've pushed sorry to omit the cat A, and this has been universally blocked by agents. How do we go about changing that fixed mindset? I imagine here, kind of, there's lots of people probably sustainably minded here, so it's slightly preaching to the choir. But there's lots of agents, lots of landlords potentially out there that aren't. How do we go about kind of making that change? Oh. <laughs> uh, we, we've come across the same problems, but um, it's got to be that communication. Um, early on it's I think it does come down to uh, appropriate site selection in the first place not looking at places which are clearly uh, inappropriate for our clients um, I also think there's a certain element of um, the architects responsible for the cate fit out um, asking for more time from going back to what you're you were talking about with the services being allowed more time in that design process to look at the potential uh, cat A fit, oh sorry, the potential cat B fit out once it's been let and, and whether the services and um, the designs that they're putting in are actually appropriate for what you know, is likely to be the test fit. So you know that meeting rooms now, people try and kind of put around the court. Well, is that possible with the, with the ductwork that they've put in, the fan coils that they've put in? Or do we already know that before they've even started, that's all gonna have to come out because it's totally unsuitable. So I think it's, that was kind of straying from your question a bit, but I think, I think there's more work to be done on, on, on that end of it as well. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully I'll ask you a more direct one and slightly easier to answer. Should the market change and basically just take away the problem of Cat A and just ban it from base build specifications? I, I think the reality yeah. is for a scheme, we have to design it to demonstrate it works. I think that design piece is very important to ensuring you know, functionality, efficiency, and, and that the space can meet the required standards we're you know, expecting, whether it's about air or lighting. But absolutely, um, I think we could do without building it um, early days and support that. And yeah, last one from the audience, sorry, was just around the drivers for Cate actually, and where, where do you think that's actually coming from? Do you think it is agency-led? Do you think it's occupier-led? When occupiers are looking around building, they're necessarily kind of wowed by a Cate fit-out, do you think? Where is that actually coming from? From what I've heard, this might be, a, I hope I'm not gonna annoy anyone here, I think it is really agency-led. I don't, I think we do need to give tenants more credit. Um, we've all been in offices and we can all envision offices and, we're all going to have our 4,000 pound, you know, new, um, what's that new Apple product? Yeah. Like we can all envision a space and um, yeah, I mean, you've just given a perfect example where one of the, the one of your projects was let out as the quickest it's, yeah. that it's ever, you know, that they've ever had a project get let out and it wasn't a cat A space. So, you know, there, there's a precedent there. 
I think there's a question of scale, to be honest, as well. I think, you know, the, the bigger spaces, the bigger organizations will have design teams behind them that can help them visualize and, and complete that design. I think on the smaller ends, it's not unreasonable to think that, you know, end user tenants only taking a small amount of space m might not have the capacity or the desire to undertake that, the, the completion of that design. And, and maybe that's where it steers closer to the cat B fit out or, you know, a plug and play offer. I think it's having that breath and, and consciousness of the different realities of tenants coming to the, to the market is, is important to factor in. Okay, thank you. And very conscious of time. And just wanting to go back to my initial poll from the start, just to see whether any opinions have changed. So, yeah, I think the question from memory was, uh, should we just get rid of cat A and just, yeah, not do it anymore? A show of hands if you think that is the approach. It looks like we've swayed the, we swayed the audience couple. slightly. Uh, and those who think it should remain, or indifferent. <laughs> there's a few out there still. I'm sure they're all dilapidation surveyors. So. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so yeah, I just want to say a big thank you to the speakers for your input today, and also to the audience for asking some engaging questions. Thanks for that, guys. Take care. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs>